Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, Thomas McGuire discusses his book, Battle of Paoli. Thomas McGuire, author of Battle of Paoli, why'd you write the book? Well, uh, I've been interested in the revolution since I was a young kid, and um, I went to school right nearby here, and when... uh, I was in school here, there was a teacher who told us about the Battle of Paoli, and it was quite a dramatic episode. Um, I wanted to know more about it, and um, all these years that I've been a history teacher and a historian, um, I found this battle absolutely fascinating. Uh, I guess around 1995, uh, the school where I teach, Malvern Prep, which owned the site of what was left of the battlefield, made a decision that they were going to dispose of that part of their campus. And uh, some people there uh, felt that it should be developed into uh, houses or uh, offices or whatever. And uh, there were others who felt that this historic significance of the land was more important than its actual uh, full real estate value. So um, in the course of that, uh, the borough of Malvern, where the battlefield is now located, got together with the school and we created a coalition of organizations um, that put together a nonprofit group called the Paoli Battlefield Preservation Fund. And the purpose of that organization was to raise funds from a lot of different sources uh, in order to buy the field uh, and preserve it forever. So I became part of that organization and became a vice president of the organization. And my job was to be the historian because I did not want to see the land developed. Because once you do that, you've ruined it. Um, My first task was to find as much information as possible that had been published about this particular battle. And what I I already knew a lot about it. uh, And as I started to um, do the research into the published sources, What I found was something that didn't surprise me. There was a great amount of sort of half-heard information. Some of it was just out-and-out mythology. Some of it had been utterly fabricated. And then there was information that had been published a hundred or more years ago that was based on first-hand accounts by people who were actually in this battle. What I found interesting about that was that even with those published first-hand accounts, there were still writers who wrote mythology about this battle and totally distorted what went on. I knew that in the the battle to preserve the site, that if in any way, shape, or form, uh, the information that we presented could be, say, disproved, in other words, if we used faulty information, that it might damage the effort to save the site. So my driving goal was to find every single piece of primary information that I possibly could find to find out exactly what happened in this battle and how much do we know and how much didn't we know. It was uh, two years worth of research, summer research, and Malvern Prep School uh, funded that research. 
Uh, in the course of that research, I found documents in the Library of Congress, a significant body of documents that in all the primary or, or the secondary sources that I went to, no one had ever used them. What those sources were was the testimony from 15 officers who were in this battle, Pennsylvania line officers, who testified at a court of inquiry held uh, about Anthony Wayne's conduct in this battle. General Wayne, about five days after this battle, wrote to Washington and demanded a court-martial because there were rumors going around that he had not performed appropriately. And uh, Washington agreed that uh, when the opportunity presented itself that they would hold a court of inquiry and then proceed to investigate just how things went in this battle. Well, it turns out that this testimony from these officers has not seen the light of day for over 150 years. And each one of them tells their version of what happened. We do know what Anthony Wayne had to say. His version of what happened was published over 100 years ago, and the originals are down in the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. But in addition to the Library of Congress testimony, there were also some letters down there from two officers that were in this battle. And they also gave great details as to what exactly went on here. So it became a detective hunt to find as much information as possible. In the course of digging through these papers in the Library of Congress, we also came across a map that Anthony Wayne drew of the camp showing where the picket posts were located, exactly where they were, because that was part of the controversy that the camp had not been guarded properly. So in his defense, he drew this map and also gave his own testimony. On top of that, uh, there's information from British officers that were in this battle. And again, some of that material had been published 100 years ago or more. Um, but then there was other material that has not been published. So my research took me not only to the Library of Congress, but also over to London to the Public Records Office to dig into British military records. And again, if you can imagine this process sort of like finding a broken piece of pottery uh, and that you found some large shards, I'll say 100 years ago or so, but on further investigation, what you thought was a cooking pot turns out to be an urn of some sort and that it actually had handles and a lid and there's a lot of pieces missing. So the course of my research did sort of that. It put a lot more of the pieces together for this battle and brought it into focus. And the story is absolutely fascinating. Um, it has uh, all of the drama you could imagine, plus some. And um, I became determined to not only do the research, but also write this in such a way that people could read it and understand it. Um, sometimes when you read history, it's, it's written in such a way that only a scholar can really make heads or tails of it. Um, so I wrote this in a way that's enjoyable to read, and I wanted to let the people who were in this battle tell the story of what happened. Now, for people who don't know the first thing about the Battle of Paoli, what war was it? This was in the American Revolution. Uh, it was in the year 1777, uh, and it occurred uh, September 20th and 21st. And it was an unusual battle because it was a battle that occurred in the middle of the night. In the 18th century, uh, battles did sometimes occur at night. It was not unheard of, but it's very difficult uh, to conduct a battle successfully at night. You need very good control and good discipline of your troops, and they have to have very specific instructions on how to function in the dark. Um, 
And it turns out the British Army in this particular battle sent some of their special forces, soldiers who were called light infantry, uh, to attack this force that was hovering behind their army. Uh, this battle occurred 10 days after the Battle of Brandywine. Brandywine was the largest battle of the American Revolution. Uh, had over 26,000 soldiers involved in uh, Brandywine. Brandywine was an American defeat. It was an attempt to prevent the British Army from capturing Philadelphia. Well, after Brandywine, Washington's army retreated towards Philadelphia, and the British Army stayed on the battlefield at Brandywine for the next five days. We're not exactly sure why. Uh, even at the time, there was some question as to why they just sat there for five days. But it gave Washington's army a chance to recover from their defeat and come back here into Chester County to go after General Howe's army again and try to prevent them from crossing the Schuylkill River to capture Philadelphia. When the British finally decided to move, they moved from Brandywine in this direction towards uh, the Schuylkill River. They had to get across the river in those days in order to take Philadelphia. And their main target, it seems at that point, or at least what Washington thought they were heading for, was a crossing place called Swedes Ford, which is today where the city of Norristown is in Montgomery County. Um, so the British had to cross the Schuylkill River to get to Philadelphia. That's right. Philadelphia in those days was uh, located entirely on the other side of the Schuylkill. So the Schuylkill was a large natural obstacle, and there were no bridges across the river at that time. So the uh, place where they were heading to cross, it seemed, the logical spot was Swedes Ford, where the city of Norristown is now located. Uh, Washington put his army between uh, the British Army and Swedes Ford, and on September 16th, just down the road from here, it looked like another major battle, about on the same scale as Brandywine, would have occurred. However, just as the uh, preliminary skirmishing started, a tropical storm let loose. This was September and hurricane season in those days as well as today. And uh, the battle was actually called off on account of rain. Uh, the battle uh, ruined the American Army's ammunition. Uh, they lost over 400,000 rounds of ammunition in this storm. Um, the British Army um, ended up camping down in Tredyffrin Township, not far from Swedesford, but the deluge of rain was such that the Schuylkill River raised up over 10 feet, so they were going to have to wait until the water went down. Washington had withdrawn his army out into the area of what's now called Chester Springs. Uh, and when he got out there, he realized his firepower was ruined, so he was going to have to get new ammunition. So he took his army further out towards Reading, uh, where the main army supply depots were. And he left Anthony Wayne with two brigades of Pennsylvania Continental troops. Uh, and told Wayne to get behind the British Army and threaten the rear of their force and also their right flank, and that when they would go to cross the Schuylkill River, if he could attack their baggage train at the rear of their column, cut off their baggage, which would be their food and ammunition supplies, they would have to stop their invasion of Pennsylvania. So Wayne uh, came over here uh, on the night of September the 18th and early morning of the 19th, with about, oh, 1,500 infantry, probably 60 or 70 cavalrymen, four artillery pieces, and the grand total of personnel that he had uh, here with him is about 2,200 when all was said and done, counting officers and musicians and so forth. Um, 
he first moved over to the Paoli Tavern, which stood in what is now the town of Paoli. The tavern burned down 1892, uh, so it's no longer there. Uh, but he first moved over there early morning, September 19th, and he was only about two to three miles from the British camp at Tredyffrin. Early the morning of September 19th, Wayne, uh, Wayne scouts noticed there was a lot of movement in the British camp at Tredyffrin, and he thought maybe he had been spotted. So he moved his force back away from the Paley Tavern and put them up on top of this hill where we're sitting now, here in what's now the town of Malvern. The town didn't exist in the 18th century. And he set up camp here, and what he was going to do was wait for reinforcements that were coming up from Maryland. There was General William Smallwood bringing up about 2,000 Maryland militia and also three artillery pieces. Now I have to point out there's a difference here between the Pennsylvania troops that were here and the Marylanders, besides the facts that they're from different states. The Maryland troops were militia. They were not regular soldiers. And militiamen in those days were technically every able-bodied male over the age of 16. There were different classes of them. And when a state called you up, you were supposed to go. It was essentially a draft of militia uh, for a short period of time, 60 days. Well, lots of these Maryland militiamen had absolutely no training at all, and many of them did not want to be drafted, so to speak. Uh, so they came up uh, reluctantly. Many of them had no weapons whatsoever. Smallwood uh, wrote to Washington over and over again and said, please get us ammunition and weapons and even food for this militia force. Did the militia have any kind of training at all? Most of them did not. Um, some... It, it literally varied from town to town, sometimes in state to state. Um, technically, militia in an ideal situation should at least get together, say, once a month and drill. Um, but if you try to put them up against professional soldiers, uh, you're a asking for catastrophe. Were they paid? The militia, uh, I don't think so. Uh, most of them were either volunteers or it was part of your duty, and if you didn't come, you would be fined for coming. Was there a noticeable difference in quality between the militia and the Continental soldiers at the time? Yes. And then was there a difference in quality between the Continental soldiers and the British? Oh, absolutely. Soldiers? Yeah. Uh, the difference was many of the Continental troops had been in the service for, well, in 1777 for at least six months. Uh, some of them had been in for over two years. And some of them were very good soldiers. But the quality varied from company to company and literally from soldier to soldier. And very often what would happen is if you got new recruits in, uh, they would put them into companies with veteran soldiers, you know, to, to show them the ropes, so to speak. And um, some commanders were really good and some uh, commanders were not so good. Anthony Wayne's troops tended to be among the best in the Continental Army. Uh, Anthony Wayne was um, a stickler for military discipline. Uh, he very strongly kept his troops under control. Uh, some might even argue that he was a little too strict. Uh, just to give you an example of how strict he was when this army uh, came up here into camp, this force that he had, they were not allowed to remove any of the fences that were in this area. Uh, the fences are going to play a major role in the battle. Uh, in other places, Washington had to issue orders over and over and over again telling soldiers and militia to leave the farmers' crops alone and to not destroy their fences and turn them into uh, firewood. Um, Wayne, being a local farmer, his house was only two miles from here, 
uh, Wayne knew the difficulty of being a farmer, and he also knew that um, the people who lived in this area had mixed loyalties. Many of the people in the area wanted nothing to do with the war one way or the other. There were lots of loyalists in the area, and there were patriots like himself. Uh, so this was a kind of a mixed bag neighborhood, and uh, both armies were trying to win the hearts and minds of the population. Uh, the British Army had a particularly difficult time because in spite of orders to, the, to not plunder, lots of British and Hessian troops did in fact plunder in the area and did a lot of damage. Uh, Washington was having the same problem though, and that was a function of discipline and also sometimes friction between soldiers from Pennsylvania, especially militia, who came up for service, and local people who were not interested in the war. So some people trashed other people's property as a result of that. I want to ask you about uh, Anthony Wayne, because he obviously plays a big role in this. Can you tell us a little bit about him? He, you said sure. he was from around here. Yes. Anthony Wayne was born uh, in Easttown Township in a house that's called Waynesboro. It's his uh, ancestral home. Is it still standing? It's still standing. It's beautifully preserved, uh, and they have a lot of wonderful uh, items in there that belong to Anthony Wayne, including a uniform coat of his from the 1790s, a very rare object. Anthony uh, was born in 1745, so at this battle he was 32 years old. He had never been in the service before the Revolution, uh, but he was absolutely uh, a bit of a hothead. He was very vain, uh, touchy personality, but he was the kind of guy that when you're in a battle, he's the kind of guy you want in charge. But uh, when the battle's over, he's very difficult to live with. You also refer uh, to him as a a hard-drinking man during hard-drinking times. Yes. Uh, Anthony Wayne, like most of the soldiers in that period and most people in that period, drank uh, on a, a daily basis. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Uh, this is a period where, uh, for instance, John Adams, a famous congressman and, of course, uh, president of the United States later, drank a tankard of hard cider every morning before breakfast. Okay, now, today we would look that at would that and say, good heavens. <laughs> Uh, Washington drank Madeira regularly. It was, it was considered actually part of health in those days. Uh, water in those days tended to be more deadly to drink than alcohol. <laughs> so um, it was no surprise. But um, Anthony Wayne was a scrapper of a fellow. Uh, and uh, when the revolution broke out, he was one of the uh, Committee of Safety members. In fact, he was chairman of the Chester County Committee of Safety. And in early 1776, he raised the 4th Pennsylvania Battalion in Chester County. It's a regiment. And because he raised the regiment, he became the colonel. Now, he had no formal military training. Now, a lot of people would look at that and say, well, then why would he get to be colonel? Well, the answer is George Washington had no formal military training either. Neither did most of the officers in the Continental Army, the American officers. This did cause controversy during the course of the war when you had European officers, British or French or whomever, who in fact had professional training, coming over here and then getting involved and then saying, well, the Americans obviously are amateurs at doing this. In a lot of ways, they were. They were literally learning how to be soldiers on the job. But the reality of the situation was there was no choice. This wasn't a case of we had a standing army and just ignored it. We had literally had to create our own army from scratch, and Americans had to learn how to become soldiers. 
the nature of Americans even today is every American knows more than the guy next to him. And especially when you're in the service, the privates always know more than the general. So that feature of our national personality, if you will, hasn't changed one bit. And this was one of the problems Washington had to contend with is, first off, he's got experts all around them, except when it's time to actually do something, then nobody knows anything. Um, you have to create a professional force. You have to tell people, look, you don't come up, join the Army, and three days later when you're bored, just go home. You're here. Army life is extremely hard, and it's deadly. Um, and this was one of the problems. On this campaign, Pennsylvania had maybe one quarter of its quota of Continental soldiers actually in the field. Recruiting people to get in the Army was a nightmare Why did by 1777. Join, did people join the Army because they believed in the cause? or uh, Initially, a lot of people did. The year before, the 1776, there was a great deal of enthusiasm and lots of people went off and joined the service. Uh, as happens with most wars, where there's an initial blast of enthusiasm, um, between the hardness of army life, which most people had no idea they were getting, what they were really getting into, and the actual fighting is so horrific in the 18th century. Most of us have little idea of just how terrible 18th century warfare was because it was done at close range. The weaponry that was used created terrible wounds. A, um, a 69 caliber round lead musket ball, if that hits you, uh, you don't want to see what it's going to do to you. Um, bayonets. This battle featured the British using bayonets only at night. The British bayonets are 18 inches long and they're triangular, which means they make a puncture wound in you. They're absolutely frightening to see, which was part of their function. If you can terrify another force off the field, you've won the battle. So fighting was done at close range and it required incredible discipline. And in the case of the European armies, Discipline was maintained with the death penalty. If a British soldier in combat panicked, dropped his musket, and tried to run, the officer would have him killed. A Hessian soldier doing the same thing would be killed instantly. American soldiers, their officers would threaten to do it, but when push came to shove, lots of them dropped their guns and ran. By 1777, you had a hardcore of Continental soldiers who were veterans, who knew what it was like to be in battle and Wayne's troops were among a lot of those veterans. But you still had other parts of the army that when push came to shove, they would panic. If their officers panic, the men are definitely gonna panic. Uh, so you had a situation, for instance, the battle before this at Brandywine. Large portions of the American army stood firm and slugged it out with British troops and Hessian troops. And the British and Hessians who wrote about the battle tell us that, that these, the Americans put up a stubborn defense here and a stubborn defense there, then there were other places where the guys, you know, the first volley dropped their muskets and ran, okay, because they weren't well trained or their commanders showed such confusion that they couldn't function. Wayne's troops at Brandywine put up one heck of a fight, and they, had the, they did a fighting withdrawal from Chad's Ford hill by hill and made the British and Hessians pay for practically every step of the way. Part of the thing that happened in this battle the, the, the brutality and ferocity of this Battle of Paoli was particularly unusual. The battle got the nickname the Paoli Massacre because when the British attacked here, they attacked with bayonets and they did commit some atrocities. Uh, when I say atrocities, what I mean is 
there were um, accounts of soldiers surrendering, American soldiers surrendering, and British troops just cutting them to pieces. Yeah, I want to um, read what you have in yeah. here. You have one Lieutenant Martin Hunter, a yeah. British soldier, made a passing remark in his description of the Battle of Brandywine that may speak volumes concerning the excesses at Paoli. At this time, the whole army were so inveterate against the Americans that they seldom gave any quarter. Yes. That was not standard procedure? No, uh, the general idea was that soldiers, uh, especially in the European armies, war was done in a very controlled fashion. And the soldiers, the discipline of the armies of Europe was so severe in those days, uh, especially among the Hessian troops, the German uh, mercenaries that were here, uh, their discipline was unbelievable. If you looked at an officer crooked, he would have you beaten to a pulp. Um, I came across an account where um, uh, a report was made back to um, the, the, the prince in Hesse Castle that a soldier who had uh, deserted, uh, who should have been executed for desertion, they decided to show leniency and have him do what was called run the gauntlet, which means they have the regiment line up and the man has to walk between two rows of soldiers and each one of them has a stick and hits him across the back as hard as he can. That soldier was forced to do that 24 times with a 200-man regiment. Now, that's frightful, <laughs> okay? In the British Army, uh, soldiers would be flogged. Two, four, six hundred lashes, sometimes a thousand lashes for breaking discipline. Um, Washington instituted discipline. It was not that severe, but it was severe, certainly by modern standards. Um, but the way the soldiers functioned by the time you get into 1777, what the British officers allow their men to do um, versus what the men actually do sometimes are two different things. And what I mean by that is the common British soldier by this campaign was so angry at the Americans and the way they functioned. The six months before this battle, the British occupied North Jersey, New Brunswick and Perth Amboy. And almost every day between January and June of 1777, American patrols hit either their foraging parties or their outposts. They would come up, blast, kill a, a century or two, and then disappear into the woods, that guerrilla-type warfare, or what they call petite guerre, the little war. Washington had no army at that point. His army had literally disintegrated, and he had to rebuild, and it was the only way he could possibly function in that six months. Well, by June of 1777, he had rebuilt an army almost up to 10,000 men. And there was some fighting that went on in the area of New Brunswick and uh, the area called Short Hills up in North Jersey. And in that, the British took a lot of casualties. And again, it was a lot of this people getting sniped. So the anger was building more and more. When they get into the Battle of Brandywine, here we finally have a situation where Washington is holding still and the British Army can now go toe-to-toe -to -toe and head-to-head -to -head and nose-to-nose, -nose, and it, it's a slugfest back and forth. And the British were actually surprised that the Americans just didn't run away as they had done in these earlier battles. So what seems to be happening here is there's a lot of pent-up frustration. And if you get into a battle situation where the men are really, they're, 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 their blood is up, if the officers allow them to have a frenzy and just go berserk, on the other side, you're going to get a situation like you get here at Paoli. There is no written evidence that the British commander, General Gray, told his men to go in and just massacre everybody. But knowing how the British Army functioned, 
the force that attacked here had to be very carefully controlled. So in other words, some of the British officers certainly either looked the other way, certainly some of them would have condoned take it out on these guys and do, shall we say, a limited frenzy. Let, them, let the guys chop them up for a bit and then say, all right, that's enough. You refer to General Gray in the book yeah. as No Flint Gray. Did yeah. he have a reputation for being well, uh, nasty it's interesting. in battle? He had just arrived over here in June of 1777. What was No Flint Gray mean? Well, he got the nickname No Flint according to tradition from this battle because before the British troops came into this battle, they were told to remove the flints from their muskets so their muskets wouldn't fire. So they would only use bayonets? To use bayonets only, okay? So he allegedly got that nickname from this. He was involved in a couple of other episodes similar to this after Paoli, uh, the worst of which was known as the Massacre of Baylor's Dragoons. It happened up in Old Tappan in uh, or Tapan, I guess is how they pronounce it in that area, up in North Jersey on the, near the Hudson River. This happened a year later than Paoli. And what happened there was British troops under Gray's command surrounded a barn that had over 200 American soldiers in it. Uh, the soldiers surrendered and the British chopped them up. Uh, and again, it was under Gray's direction. So, you know, that always raises the question, is that just the way this man, particular fellow, functions? It seems that his attitude was, look, you're in war, when you go in the battle, you go in and be as brutal as possible within, you know, an allowable, you know, realm, and that's it. There's no playing around with these people. Um, certainly what the British did here so inflamed the American uh, troops, especially the Pennsylvania troops, that this became a rallying cry for them, remember Paoli. Um, we have an account from one of the British officers uh, that was in this, Lieutenant Martin Hunter, when uh, the Battle of Germantown took place two weeks after this. He heard Pennsylvania troops shouting, uh, Revenge Wayne's Affair. That's what they, another name they gave to this. And they, were, uh, they gave the British Light Infantry the nickname the Bloodhounds for coming up and doing this and then chasing these guys off into the dark. But that, um, that was one of the features of not just this war, any war, where when you get into an actual combat situation, um, at what point are soldiers supposed to just shut off? You know, uh, one minute, you know, and where does acceptable military procedure turn into atrocity? Um, and in the case of this battle, it was dark. Uh, the, the scene, Martin Hunter later became a general in the British Army and he served in India. He was a career officer, I think, for over 30 years. And he, when he wrote this, he said that this was the most terrible scene he ever saw uh, because it was dark, uh, the screaming that was going on and the clash of bayonets and sabers. The American, there were American troops that stood here and fought very, very hard. Uh, others just broke and ran in panic. Um, How many were killed? Well, that's an interesting question. In the grave that's over here uh, behind my shoulder, there are 52 soldiers buried, American soldiers. Uh, about two weeks after the battle, another was found somewhere in the woods and buried where they found them. So the monument says there's 53. But we don't know if that's just the soldiers that were found here or if it's all of them. Uh, there was a picket post down about three quarters of a mile from here, the first post that was hit. And tradition tells us that between four and eight of those pickets out of a total of 18 were either killed or wounded. Some of them may be buried over at St. Peter's in the Great Valley Church because that picket post was down the hill from here and the idea of 
carting those casualties all the way up here to this grave seems unlikely. British casualties, um, the best we can put together, they lost one officer and two or three privates killed, a sergeant killed, and between eight and 20 men wounded. This was a very one-sided battle. The British suffered about 20 casualties. Wayne suffered between 250 and 300. The 52 to 53 killed, about 150 wounded, and the British took between 70 and 80 prisoners. Now, it was from those prisoners that and some of the wounded that the stories about the British atrocities uh, occurred or came from and the evidence of some of those wounded. Uh, to give you an example, the Fife Major of the 7th Pennsylvania Regiment was Richard Stack. Now, a Fife Major is a senior musician. Musicians are non-combatants. Now, it's possible that in the dark they couldn't identify him as a musician. But Stack was stabbed 13 times. Now, when you stab someone with an 18-inch bayonet once, <laughs> that gets their attention, if nothing else. Twice, you're, 13 times is a frenzy. Um, the drum major of Colonel Hartley's additional regiment, a guy named Daniel St. Clair, he lost all the fingers on his left hand, he lost his left eye, and he had cuts out on his head and shoulders. And what that sounds like happened is that a, a cavalryman came up and was attacking him with a, with a saber. Of course, he put his hand up and got his hand, his hand taken right off. And again, maybe they didn't see that he was a musician. Um, but there are other uh, soldiers who survived who were wounded that were stabbed 12, 13, and 14 times. The worst account we came across was from a uh, Chester County militiaman who was stationed 25 miles west of here at a tavern, McClellan's Tavern out in Sadsbury Township. Um, he tells us that Two days after this battle, a Quaker farmer brought a soldier in that he had found somewhere near this battlefield. And he said the soldier was covered with dried blood and his clothes were so stiff with dirt and dried blood, he said he thought they would stand up by themselves. So they took the clothes off him and he said he was a soldier, he was from Virginia, and he said that a group of a dozen British soldiers had gotten him into a circle and they started to play with him with the bayonets, poking him. And he figured they were going to kill him so that he broke from out of the circle and managed to get away. Well, they cleaned him up and found 46 wounds on him. That soldier's name possibly was Corporal James Martin from the 13th Virginia Regiment. The soldiers here, the infantry were all Pennsylvania regiments. And yet this account tells us this guy was a Virginian. And the surgeon's list from Lancaster that was done in October lists Corporal James Martin from the 13th Virginia Regiment. I went into that regiment's payrolls. They survive, and he's listed as wounded the 21st of September. I have no idea what he was doing here, uh, but he was here, evidently. Can I interrupt sure. for a second to ask you to orient us as to where we're sitting? Sure. I mean, if somebody wants to come to this spot and see where we are and what took place, right. where are we? Okay. We're sitting here in what's called the Paoli Memorial Grounds. This land was set aside in the 1820s as a drill field. Um, at the time of the battle, we, we were in what's now the middle of the battlefield. If you had been here the night of September 20th, you wouldn't believe what you'd be seeing in front of you here. Uh, behind me where you see the grave, there was a fence right where that grave is. The fence line ran right through the middle of what's now the grave. And Wayne's camp was immediately on the other side of that. The camp had these little 
brush shelters that were called wigwams or booths. They were made out of tree limbs and corn stalks and things like that. And again, uh, there were, and there were campfires in front of them. Uh, Wayne had a total number of about 2,200 personnel, four cannons on the far right flank of the camp down near what's now Warren Avenue. Wayne's headquarters was behind where you're sitting. The house is gone. It was whatever was left of it was torn down in the 80s. Um, and this was the farm of the Pierce family, Cromwell Pierce. Cromwell Pierce was a Chester County militia officer. Um, Wayne's troops were here for a full day and they were going into their second night of camping here. That was Wayne's biggest mistake, was staying here two nights. Uh, he was only four miles from the main British Army and between loyalists in the area and British patrols, they were bound to spot a force of 2,200 men this close. Wayne argued later that if he had moved this force any further away, he would not have been able to follow the orders that Washington had given him. So that was his defense and it held up. But um, where we're sitting, this uh, fence that was here where the gravesite is, that became a major obstacle for Wayne's force when they were trying to withdraw. Uh, some of the fence rails had been taken down to let wagons and things go through. And in fact, when Wayne became alerted that the British force was approaching, one of the myths of this battle, which has been repeated over and over again, is that Wayne's troops were asleep when the British came into the camp and that they were all killed in their sleep. They were not killed in their sleep. They were wide awake. Well, most of them wide awake, uh, under arms and in the process of moving out of the camp. Wayne had, in fact, been warned that an attack was coming. Uh, he had gotten at least two different warnings. And he made the decision to stay here and wait for these reinforcements from Maryland that were due here any minute. When he finally moved, uh, in response to the knowledge that this British force was coming, the first encounter American troops had with this British force was two miles from here. And it was two American cavalrymen down on Swedesford Road who saw the front of the British column coming up. They challenged the column. British did not answer, so they fired and withdrew. And one of the uh, dragoons came up and told Wayne there was a force coming. He sent the dragoon back for confirmation and immediately told the men to get under arms. And he himself rode out up and down the line telling the men to turn out. So they did. And from the testimony of these officers, this testimony I referred to earlier that's in the Library of Congress, they tell us they were under arms for at least five minutes, some say as long as 15 minutes, and Wayne essentially was waiting to see which direction this British attack was coming. And when he heard gunfire from down on the Lancaster Road, his picket post number four, they were the first pickets to actually get hit, he could hear from them firing at this British advance force that the attack was coming on his right flank. So he immediately ordered the infantry to file off to the left and go out what's now Sugartown Road. He also told the artillery, the four guns that he had that were on the far right flank, to get out of camp as fast as possible by the left. So those guns took off down the back of this camp and came flying right through where you and I are sitting and headed for Sugartown Road. There were at least two other lines of fences between here and that road, and the road itself had these fences along both sides of it, as Pennsylvania farm land still has today. Ammunition and commissary wagons estimate 20 to 25 other wagons then followed the artillery out. The infantry were filing out and heading for that same road, and 
Wayne took one regiment, the 1st Pennsylvania, and swung them over to the right flank to support the pickets and slow the British attack down. But there were a couple of problems. First off, the 1st Pennsylvania Regiment at that time were mostly Pennsylvania riflemen, not musketmen. Pennsylvania rifles were long-range weapons that were great at 300 yards. They're very accurate, deadly. The problem with the Pennsylvania rifle was it took you a minute to a minute and a half to reload because the ball fit so tightly down the barrel and it was not equipped with a bayonet. And Wayne himself tells us that out of the 200 men in that regiment, only 60 of them had bayonets. So he puts that regiment over there to slow the British down. When uh, the British came up the road towards the camp, the picket over there, picket number three, fired at the British and it appears that the 1st Pennsylvania then fired at their own men in the dark. That's one reason the British had their muskets unloaded. They knew that this friendly fire would occur because in this kind of a situation you can't see quite who's who. So General Gray said if you take your muskets or flints out of your musket, anyone that fires in the dark is an American. And the Americans, they said, will start shooting at each other. Well, in this case that happened. The 1st Pennsylvania firing at their own pickets revealed their position there to the British Light Infantry. It lit the woods up for a second. Now the 1st Pennsylvania was desperately trying to reload in the dark with this British force coming towards them. The British were silent until they got in the position and then one of their officers said they let out a cheer that made the woods echo and charged into the woods. Well, the psychological impact of that is panic on the side of the other force. Wayne had given the orders for this column, meanwhile in the camp, to get out. And he hoped the 1st Pennsylvania would buy them some time. Well, the column formed up, it started out of camp, and then it stopped for no apparent reason. Wayne eventually himself rode over to see what the problem was. And this is where the chaos uh, of the moment really started to, to grow into a panic. One of the cannons, when it went tearing out of the camp, when it got on the Sugartown Road, broke its wheels. The gun broke down in the middle of the road, and apparently it had just gone past where the, the uh, infantry column was coming into the road. The infantry stopped to let the guns go past. They were tearing along. Well, the one gun broke. The wagons come up behind it. It creates a traffic jam. You have a, a situation where you have a temporary jam up, a string of 20 or so wagons back into the camp. There's dark, thick woods on the other side of the infantry, and this broken down jam on the road, so the column of infantry is stopped the tail of them is back in the camp with campfires burning and silhouetting them. The British come in and hit the column from the rear and they can see the Americans silhouetted by the campfires. The Americans can't see them but they can hear them coming in the dark. They hear the volley that the first Pennsylvania fires. Then you suddenly hear this God's awful huzzah out of the dark which they said made the woods echo, just like my voice just did. Now that's one big mouth doing this. You can imagine two, three, four hundred British light infantrymen letting that out. The first Pennsylvania went falling back out of the woods into the camp with the light infantry hot on their tail. There was an American officer, Samuel Hay, of the 7th Pennsylvania Regiment. They were at the tail of the column. And he says, we heard this coming. And he said, I managed to get the two rear platoons to turn around. And he said, we could then see the British by the light of the campfires lighting their uniforms up. So we started to shoot at them. But the British surrounded the column, the back of the column, like a horseshoe. And wherever they saw an opportunity, they would then charge with bayonets. Well, this created panic among some of the men who were wondering why this column won't move. They start to break formation. 
uh, the column cannot get through these fences. So this is where the chaos happened. The grave site is probably located where it is because it's the scene of the greatest casualties, because this fence line was sitting right there. Some of the regiments eventually pushed through and made the fence line a defense perimeter, and they started to fire volleys at the British. What seems to have happened in most cases is when the British saw tight uh, companies or platoons of Americans organized and firing, they stayed away from them because there were plenty of other guys who panicked and ran, and they were easier targets. So British troops and panicking Americans went swarming off in different directions here. That was the attack of the British Light Infantry. Right after that, 12 British dragoons, horseback, come thundering across the camp with their sabers out. And of course, they're taking an arm here and a head there and so forth. Uh, one of the American officers said that the noise of the enemy's horse intimidated our men very much. Uh, as this situation developed, another British regiment, the 44th, came in behind the dragoons and again added to the, just the sheer number of British troops coming into the camp. How many British troops were there in the attack altogether? Probably no more than 1,200. And they're attacking an American force of over 2,000. Now, a lot of later accounts said the British attacked here with 5,000. I have no idea where they got that number from. Uh, we know from British uh, troop returns and payrolls, muster rolls, etc., 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 the numbers, which are also confirmed by letters the British officers wrote that we had a force of this cer certain size. But as it always appears in the dark when you're being attacked, 100 men looks like 500, especially if they're all shouting at the top of their lungs. This same officer that said the men were intimidated by the shouts of the enemy, um, uh, or the, the noise of the enemy's horse, also said that our little force was attacked last night with almost 4,000 men accompanied with all the noise and yells of hell. So here is this terrifying scene, which was part of the whole strategy, was to put so much panic into these American troops that they would break formation and go in, in chaos. The wonder was that Wayne actually was able to maintain as much of a force as he did, that they didn't all just disappear into the woods. But it tells you something about Wayne's troops, as in fact most of them did stay in formation, most of them did stand and fight, and it was these stragglers the British went after. That was the second wave. The third wave was probably the most terrible of all because it was two battalions of Scottish Highlanders, the 42nd Regiment, the Black Watch. Whether they brought bagpipes with them, we don't have any first-hand accounts. It wouldn't have surprised me. This is the perfect chance to use bagpipes to their ultimate terror. Bagpipes in daylight, when you hear pipes coming in a battle, you know Highlanders are coming and it sends chills up your spine and oftentimes could cause troops to panic and run. In a night assault, <laughs> wow, the thought is, is absolutely horrifying. But the Highlanders came into camp in a third wave, but instead of just running through the camp, they swept across in tight formation, bayoneting anybody that got in their way, and they set the camp on fire. So here was this absolutely scene from Dante's Inferno. Uh, the Highlanders may have committed most of the atrocities. Um, they had a reputation for going into battle and just tearing everybody to pieces. Um, so that may have added to it. But most of Wayne's force did get away. The total number of casualties he suffered was about 15%. Can I ask you a little bit about yourself? Certainly. You mentioned that you were a high school teacher? Yes. Malvern Prep? That's right. What kind of school is that? 
Malvern is a boys' school, Catholic boys' school. We have uh, just under 600 students this year. Uh, it's uh, uh, run by uh, the Augustinian Fathers. It was originally located down on Villanova University's campus. And uh, we've been on this location since 1922. And it turns out that uh, up until, uh, well, actually last November, uh, the site of what's left of this battlefield uh, was owned by the school. And uh, it's, a, uh, it's a private school that is independent and it um, it's completely supports itself. You teach history? That's right, yeah. What kind of history? I teach U.S. history, not surprisingly, and I also teach European history. How long have you been teaching? Uh, this is my 21st year. Where'd you go to school? Well, I attended Malvern Prep as a, uh, a high school student and I also went to Villanova University. So the connection is constant here. You were on this network before for this book yeah. about uh, the Battle of Germantown, which plays a role in your Battle of Paoli because it took place a few days later or a couple weeks later? Yeah, about two weeks later. It was early October. And uh, the, the, the fight there was directly connected to what happened here. If the British soldiers were so good compared to the American soldiers, whatever gave the American soldiers the idea that they could win their independence? Well, if you get into the actual factual history of the American Revolution, you ask that question over and over again is how did we possibly win this? And the answer comes down to a couple of different things. Persistence and perseverance on the part of Washington and uh, Anthony Wayne and some of these other leaders of the revolution who would not give up and literally became the heart and soul of the revolution. Uh, those soldiers that stayed and did their duty because there were lots of people who didn't stay and do their duty and, and one of the greatest frustrations Washington had through the whole war was indifference of a lot of people in this country towards you know one way or the other. Uh, John Adams actually exaggerated when he said that a third of the people here were rebels and a third were Tories and a third didn't care. It was more like uh, 5 percent, 5 percent, and 90 percent, and the 90 percent being those who really didn't care one way or the other. Just to give you an example uh, to sort of reinforce that from another viewpoint, Pennsylvania's leading loyalist was a fellow named Joseph Galloway, who was a, one of the richest people in Pennsylvania, a, a uh, lawyer in Philadelphia, one of Benjamin Franklin's best personal friends before the war. He was the chief spy master for the British Army when they came through this area. He was in charge of coordinating all of the loyalists in the area to serve as scouts. He became the chief of police in Philadelphia during the British occupation, and no one was more shocked and horrified than Joseph Galloway when the British left Philadelphia. He had to leave with them. He then uh, wrote pamphlets in England criticizing General Howe's conduct here and basically said that Howe threw the war. Uh, and he thinks it was for political reasons. Now, the British basically ignored what Galloway said, but his explanation was there was no reason why, other than deliberate sabotage, why the British Army should have not won this war. Was Howe the top general? He was the in British commander-in-chief, and he had been over here for over two years. And more than once, Brandywine being a perfect example. He wins a battle against the Americans, drives them off the field, and then sits and lets them get away. Galloway was furious in this thing, especially after Brandywine, letting Washington's army get away, then come back at him. But even more so, he said, 
perfect example is Valley Forge. Here is the rebel army, less than 12,000 men. At one point, they're down to less than 5,000 men. They're sitting in the province of Pennsylvania that has 280,000 people in it. It's the breadbasket of the colonies, and this army is almost starved to death. What's the problem? Why didn't the British Army finish them off? And the answer is General Howe's leadership. He chose not to, for whatever reason. Something I learned, you mentioned Valley Forge, and I have to read this part because you uh, mentioned a, a Battle of Valley Forge. <laughs> and people hear the phrase Battle of Valley Forge, and then that's always debunked as, well, there was no Battle of yes. Valley Forge, but your book says there actually was a Battle of Valley Forge. <laughs> The way I put it in here, it's in quotation marks. I'm being facetious. The Battle of Valley Forge was a skirmish between eight American dragoons and about 200 British dragoons. It lasted for probably 10 to 15 minutes maximum. Each side lost a horse. There was actually one American killed and one man wounded. You say the British won. Their spoils included uh, 3,800 barrels of flour, mm -hmm. soap and candles, 25 barrels of horseshoes, several thousand tomahawks. Yes and kettles and entrenching tools and 20 hogsheads of resins, tomahawks. Yes, American soldiers carried tomahawks. Now they're also called hatchets, but um, they were little axes and they were used primarily for chopping wood, but they can also be used as a weapon. British troops carried them also. That's another little shock, especially the British light infantry. They were very fond of taking on American stuff and, and many of them carried these. They sometimes called them camp axes, but that was another word used for them. Valley Forge at the time of this battle was not famous as an, it had, the encampment hadn't happened yet. It was an ironworks on Valley Creek and the Continental Commissary Department and the Quartermaster Department stored flour and things like these tomahawks and kettles there. Some of the accounts indicate there was some ammunition stored there, cannonballs and things, but as far as we can tell, they probably weren't made at that forge. A forge was used to take pig iron, heat it up and pound it into bar iron to make horseshoes, etc., etc. Um, but the stuff was simply being stored there. There was stuff stored all over this countryside. Well, I want to ask you about that because at one point in the book you have Washington having to make a decision about whether to go east or west, whether yes. to defend Philadelphia, Lancaster, or, or Reading. Yes. What was the significance of each of those? In particular, the government was in Philadelphia. Yeah. What was significant about Lancaster and Reading at the time? Lancaster was the largest inland city in America in those days, about 10,000 people. And uh, Lancaster County area, between food and ironworks, there were iron manufacturing places, forges and furnaces all through the region. Uh, so those areas were significant for supporting the army. Reading was a major Continental Army supply depot, and that's where food, ammunition, uniforms, tents, and things like that were kept in storage for the army's use. Now you might say to yourself, you, you're familiar with stories of the army not having proper food, proper clothing, shoes, enough tents, enough equipment, and part of the problem was you had to gather the stuff first. I mean, bureaucracy is nothing new, and in the 18th century, you can't email somebody or phone them up and say, you know, bring a tractor trailer and deliver 10,000 coats. Uh, it takes months to pull the stuff together. You then pull it into a location that hopefully is a safe location. The Continental Army in uh, the spring of 1777 suffered a terrible uh, loss up in Danbury, Connecticut. That was a huge storage depot and the British launched a raid on it and they captured it. There was a nice little battle there, but the Americans lost. The British captured Danbury and they burned it. 
and they burn thousands and thousands of barrels of uh, pork and flour, uh, uh, uniform uh, tents, all that stuff. Now you have to replace it. It's all going to cost a fortune, and you have to then gather it together. In the meantime, the army, you know, they're soldiers without shoes and without clothing. So you have to shield a place like Reading. Philadelphia was the largest city in North America in those days and a major port. Congress met there, but Congress could meet anywhere. It really doesn't matter. Uh, one of the benefits of Congress being the way it was in those days, the, the, the Congress was a confederation government, and they were actually working on the Articles of Confederation. It had so little power and so little influence that if they packed up and moved, no one really noticed. <laughs> well, I'm being, again, facetious with that, but um, what became the heart and soul of the American Revolution is the Continental Army itself. Um, and if Congress has to flee Philadelphia, it's a psychological blow, but it's not necessarily the end of the story. Whereas in Europe, if the capital falls, well, then you've pretty much reached the end of the rope. That was one of the frustrating things the British dealt with was that theoretically, if you captured Philadelphia, maybe the war should end, but it didn't. So the question then is, all right, now what? But it came down to, you know, are you capturing real estate or are you going to win the war? And it turns out they captured real estate. We only have about a minute left. Are there some of your favorite Revolutionary War sites that may not be all that famous around that you might recommend people oh, visit? Oh, certainly Fort Mifflin uh, down on the Delaware River and uh, Brandywine uh, State Park. Um, any of the taverns that, or hotels or inns that you mentioned in the book? Well, the General Warren Inn is still down here. It's quite an, a, a fancy restaurant and, uh, uh, you know, a nice place to visit. Um, but, uh, no, the area has a lot of different places. There is one thing I would like to add. Um, this uh, book was made possible through a large grant from the Pennsylvania Society of Sons of the Revolution Who are they? and its color guard. They are the descendants of Washington's army. Um, the illustrations that are in the book were made possible through a fundraising effort from the children of the American Revolution. Again, children who are descended from people who were in the Continental Army and in the American forces in the Revolution. So the connection here is really, you know, stunning that these two organizations helped to make this book possible. This is the book, Battle of Paoli. Tom McGuire, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.